Welcome to GovCast. I am your host, Managing Editor Amy Kluber. And my team knowing that sometimes technology doesn't have to be the solution. I think that's a misnomer I've been hearing a lot where people are like, oh, well, we'll just throw some technology at the problem and it'll automatically solve it. And it's like, no, maybe not. And maybe that's not the way to go. I think a technologist knows when to use technology as the right tool for the equation. Here in the studio with me today is Nagesh Rao, Director of Business Technology Solutions at the Small Business Administration. Nagesh, you call yourself a geek in residence. What's the story on that? Is that self-appointed? Yes. So it is self-appointed. I am a huge nerd and geek, obviously around technology and innovation and sci-fi and comics of that nature, but also a fan of the classics. And I guess I take the pride in the term geek and nerd because I like to learn. I like to understand and look at complex problems and try to better figure out solutions for those problems or or at least better understand the problem at hand, even if a solution can't be had. But I love to learn. And so, I'm, yeah, I'm a nerd. <laughs> or a geek. Or a geek, um, yeah. <laughs> so what, what do you do specifically at the SBA? So currently, my nine-to-five job with the U.S. Small Business Administration is focused around IT application development. So I spent the last year in the office of the chief information officer working for Maria Rowe, who's the CIO, and Guy Cavallo, the deputy CIO, helping them transform the IT systems and IT applications we have at our agency from an enterprise level. So I oversee a team of around 15 feds along with another 40 to 50 contractors. And our whole goal is to modernize our technology solutions so that we go from an on-prem perspective to the cloud-based solution. The goal being a SaaS environment for down the road. So moving to the cloud is kind of like a common theme nowadays in government. Would you say that's a trend? It's definitely a trend, but it's a trend because of a mandate that dates back about almost 10 years ago. So the federal government made the decision to encourage the modernization of IT systems across the board and that the policy should be a cloud first policy if and when appropriate. So not every solution will be cloud. But if it makes sense, you know, obviously look towards a cloud solution. And part of that really comes down to the costs around IT maintenance and IT management, especially when you're dealing with on-premise hardware systems. It's quite costly to maintain, to patch, to upgrade when processors fail out and you have to put new processors in or server plates and whatnot. The world is going very digital quickly. And it was just behooved the federal government to say, look, well, we should also start thinking about going digital, too. What is it that you do in your current role specifically as Director of Business Technology Solutions? So as the director, I actually oversee our DevSecOps and IT application team. Essentially, some of the many projects that we oversee include our intranet site, which is using the Microsoft SharePoint, and then our external web application system, so the famous one being SBA.gov. And along that, helping develop solutions for the small business administration divisions that have a need for applications that have to engage with external stakeholders. So, and this was stemmed from my prior role when I joined SBA about five and a half years ago when I was working on the SBIR.gov system. The SBIR.gov system, I transformed from a static, goofy website into an actual database content curated application that grew essentially over the years from like 
maybe around 20 to 50,000 unique visitors per year to a million unique visitors by the time I was done. Wow. And it curated all the 11 federal agencies that participate in the Small Business Innovation Research Program, curated the funding, the solicitations, and data around that. And so I took my experience from those efforts in my prior role at SBA, and, and Maria said, hey, join the CIO team. You know, you should do this for us enterprise-wide. And so I took a lot of that knowledge base there that I developed with SBA.gov and started to execute that from an enterprise way for the entire agency as to how we should set the tone on application development, how to make better technology solutions and better technology applications more effective and useful. So the SBA.gov system, for example, which we're in the middle of curating and modernizing, helps out with the number of visitors around 10 million plus. And when you think about the number of entrepreneurs that are in small businesses that are across the U.S., which is around 30 million, our face-to-face engagement gets tough for an agency that fights above its weights class. We help with our resource partners and us as an agency from an engagement perspective. It's usually around two to two and a half million folks that we help out each year. So the question came back down to is like, how do we augment that and help out? And the digital made sense. I mean, the digital outreach with our platform exceeds that person-to-person count. And quite honestly, not everyone's ready to deal with the face-to-face discussion. So how do you help augment the experience so that people go to the site, get the information they need, and then when they are ready to talk to a person, I call it upping their SBA IQ just a little bit more so they're prepared to ask better questions rather than fumble in the first 15 minutes. I do have hirings happening right now on my team. I have three vacancies. They're posted on USA Jobs. So if you're interested in joining the OCIO BITS team, apply. Throw your hat in the ring. They're GS 13s and 14s. So is there maybe a lesson you learned from the SBIR.gov initiative or maybe a a common theme that you can share? Yeah. So I I think... Among the many applications, and, and although I'm here talking about SBA.gov, we have a lot of other applications like LenderMatch that we helped out with, or right now we're actually implementing a single sign-on identity platform for the enterprise-wide. Uh, we're using the login.gov template from 18F. We're also modernizing our entrepreneur development management information system and coalescing our DevSecOps. We use AWS and Azure, and so we're trying to coalesce the standards so that both systems interact and talk to each other better. And there's a lot more than that. I think SB.gov is visually the front-facing forward one that everyone will understand immediately. And I think to answer your question on lessons learned, I think it was just know your user. Know your user. As a technologist, I, I pride myself on and my team knowing that sometimes technology doesn't have to be the solution. I think that's a misnomer I've been hearing a lot where people are like, oh, well, we'll just throw some technology at the problem and it'll automatically solve it. And it's like, no, maybe not. And maybe that's not the way to go. I think a technologist knows when to use technology as the right tool for the equation. And with that, I think lessons learned, I've been learning on that, is finding out when it's appropriate to use technology solutions when it's not needed, understanding the user base, understanding a multifaceted user base. So with SBR.gov, I think what was interesting there was the generation gap I was dealing with with the entrepreneurs. I had millennials all the way to baby boomers applying for funding for a cyber. And the means of communication with each of those audience bases is very different. And so I had to make SBR.gov work in a way that it was able to get the information out there effectively and more importantly, conducive to those different generations who were using it. And that's the same premise around SBA.gov. The entrepreneur is not just some 21-year-old programmer. 
And yes, I said programmer, not a programmer, programmer. And the entrepreneur is not just some 60-year-old person who's in their last hurrah who said, I'm going to go create my own business and my shop before I say goodbye, right? It's a variety of mix. And, and they're high-tech focused and there's low-tech focused. An entrepreneur is an entrepreneur is an entrepreneur, though, and the small business owner is a small business owner. And, and the fact is, is that they are folks who are looking to create economic prosperity for themselves and cultivate that in an effective manner. And we're just a tool in the toolkit to help them out. And I guess the way I'll close it out is just getting the right information at the right time. Okay. This next question might be a little out there. What does technology mean to you? Oh, man. Wow. I mean, technology is the study of science and tech. Man, it could be a lot of different things. I mean, there's low tech and there's high tech. You know, I think technology is an art or an application of tools in the toolkit to help solve a problem. And the utilization of a technical nature to help solve the problem, I think, you know, driven based on data evidence and evidence-based decision-making. Okay, that's succinct. I was expecting maybe a little bit long-winded answer, but that was actually perfect. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's actually one of my uh, New Year's resolutions was to work on being more succinct. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, perfect. Mission accomplished. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so going back into your history, you dabbled in a few different areas, mm -hmm. including pre-medical program. Oh, God. Uh, a mat material science yeah, degree, I'm, I'm a material MBA. Engineer. What were you first interested in during that time to pursue those degrees or areas of interest? So I'm South Asian. I'm of Indian origin. So for the Indian folks, they know when you're born, automatically it's told you're going to become a medical doctor, right? So like my dad's a surgeon. So it was right off the bat. My dad's like, well, someone's got to carry on the legacy. Thanks to my younger sister, she did. So, you know, obviously I had an, an acute interest right off the bat in the medical sciences just because of the fact of my dad and his nature of work and the really cool stuff he was doing. And then I gravitated uh, towards engineering. Actually, it's because of my older sister. We were both at the same undergrad. She was a PhD student at that time at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And I was starting my undergrad as she was finishing up her PhD. And it, I just saw what she was doing in materials engineering and that I gravitated towards. I wanted to understand science and technology from different perspectives in materials engineering actually was that discipline that did that. It, materials engineering looks at science from a chemical, electrical, mechanical perspective. And so I said, well, that's a really cool multidisciplinary focused degree. I would love to study that more. And what I did. And I wasn't the greatest engineer, but I, I learned an awful lot. It was funny. I actually did a lot better in the advanced classes than I did in the basics. Interesting. Yeah. Like physics, force equals mass times acceleration, that kind of stuff, I would get stumped on, right? But quantum mechanics was easy. Loved quantum. I don't know why, but I understood electrons jumping orbitals from the, you know, SPDF valences and whatnot. I would get that. And it was just Heisenberg's equation of uncertainty. I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But force equals mass times acceleration, I would stumble on that. I don't know why. Well, I can relate a little bit. I was actually into math myself. Oh, yeah? But here I am as a journalist. So well, how does that work? <laughs> well, journalism is fun. Actually, I did op-eds and, and tech journalism for a little bit. I wrote pieces for TechCrunch and stuff like that. And after I was finishing my engineering degree, I actually looked at the Northwestern Metal School of Journalism. So I thought that was a really cool program. And journalists are driven on 
looking at scenarios, telling a story, telling a narrative and understanding the different perspectives to that narrative and being unbiased about it. Right. So everyone's looking at that same situation and has different takes on it. And your job as the journalist, no matter what feelings are coming through to you, you have to look at it from a fair perspective and say, well, these are the different perspectives on that same issue. No matter who's right or wrong, this is the unbiased view. I have a lot of respect for journalism. You've also served in and out of government in a variety of positions. Yeah, yeah. What drew you to government to begin with? Health insurance. <laughs> oh, no. Straight up. Actually, I'll, I'll that's, that's a perfect answer, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was a resigned fellow at the National Academy of Sciences, and I was wrapping up there, and the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office was hiring. And I threw my hat in the ring. I was actually, I just completed my master's in intellectual property. So I, friends in, of mine were telling me, you know, if you want to really understand intellectual property law, especially patent law, and you just finished your master's in that, the resign thing's cool, Nagish, but they were like, you know, try to get a job at the patent office. That's the mecca of all things IP. And I said, all right. So I interviewed and hustled my way into getting a job there as a GS7 examiner and just climbed up through the ranks and just picked up the pieces of the puzzle there. And I actually think it was to my benefit because intellectual property law is a really complex topic. It has issues around property rights, contract rights, science and technology rights, all these different aspects, variables to the play. So my materials engineering background and that perspective of understanding different perspectives really played well there too. And I had a lot of fun. It's a tough job, but I learned an awful lot about science, technology, and innovation and forecasting actually on science and tech trends. I I saw some of the early day iPhone technologies coming through the pipeline before the iPhone even was unveiled. Actually, I still remember this day when the solar powered rendition of the iPhone was filed. And I saw it and I had to keep my mouth shut until it went public through a pre-grant publication. When that went public, I was like, oh, hey, folks, check it out. This is on Apple's horizon. And this was in 2000, I want to say 7, 2008. Around the time of the first iPhone. Yeah, exactly. And so I could tell right there. I was like, okay, Apple has made it clear that they are investing time into getting this property right. Whether or not they get it's a different story, but they're making time to invest in. That should clue you in, folks that they see this as a topic of interest for them. And that was the interesting thing. I remember seeing all the 3D printing patents back in 2004. I had to review all those technologies. We call them solid freeform fabrication, stereolithography and stuff like that. 3D printing. I saw it and was reviewing those back in 2004, 2005. And I remember seeing one of the ones that actually made the news. I had reviewed it and it was basically some of the core patents that NASA was filing along with some other companies around 3D printing of organic material, you know, body parts, food, whatever it may be. And so I saw that and I I remember reviewing it and I ended up allowing the apparatus around that technology was what it was filed for. And then like maybe six, seven months later, it was on NBC or something like that. And we're like, whoa. And then my senior examiner, who's my boss, he sent out a note saying, yeah, that's the patent now you should have allowed and the story, the article was about Star Trek Replicator maybe become real life. And they're like, yeah, <laughs> but, but I'd, I'd known that was in play for a few years. So you're also a Star Wars fan. Huge. Uh, you know, your Millennium Marvel's... Falcon on your profile. Totally saw that. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm actually a Disney fan myself. So okay. I kind of adopted Star Wars into my... After Disney, <laughs> yes. <laughs> actually, my wife, she's on art background, art history and stuff. And she did a class on Disney. Oh, wow. At University of Michigan, and she loves Disney and and stuff of that nature. And what was funny was, you know, you would think, oh, that's just one of those 
creative knockoff easy a classes and when i she told me what she had to go through in the curriculum i was like oh okay that's actually some hard that's work legit. Yeah. that's legit <laughs> and and she was telling me the business processes that disney used and the operations parameters and, and how they came up with their curated content the visualization the design the arts I was like, okay, this is why they're a multi-billion dollar company. Yeah, seriously. I just saw a an infographic the other day of all the properties that Disney owns. And I was like, oh, they own, you know, ESPN, of course. And I was amazed. Talk about not being a small business, right? Yeah, no, they've, <laughs> that company has matured big time. So many of your roles has involved engaging government, industry, and academia what does this kind of collaboration mean to you? Why is it important? Yeah, so I think the government university industry collaboration is the signifying of the key stakeholders in a true public to private partnership. And I would take university out and put not profit, right? Because universities tend to be not for profit, but there are other entities out there that operate in a not for profit perspective. And I think what's clear about those three stakeholders is that they are main drivers in the economy, whether it's the American economy or the global economy. And they all play their pulls and pushes and the levers that are needed. And government is supposed to be the referee, right? Government sets the tone, the policy, stuff of that nature. The private sector goes and implements and works around the rules in place to drive an economy forward, along with the not-for-profit sector that does quite an awful lot in helping drive that pipeline forward. So to me, they all act in different pieces of the puzzle. Think about it from an intellectual, political, and financial capital perspective, right? So the financial capital perspective is the private sector, the intellectual capital perspective is academia, and the political capital perspective is government. There are other variances and whatnot that are in play, but I think those are the three forms of capital that drive any effort forward. So back at SBA, where do you see small businesses or startups playing in IT modernization efforts? Uh, huge. I think IT development and IT modernization, I think small businesses are crucial from that perspective, especially from coming up with those new innovative solutions to also being able to implement. So I'm reminded of a quote my buddy Steve Sasson, who's the inventor of the digital camera, he told me once, he said, you know, large corporations are great in the sense that they've got this massive footprint that they can work off of, but they're lousy yet innovating, right? Because they're so huge and fear of cannibalization within the company, how will happen? When he developed the digital camera, he did so under the auspices of Kodak. And he watched what he developed. And the first question they asked him was, well, what's the horizon on this? And this was like in the 70s when he invented the digital camera. It wasn't even a thinking of like, oh, you know, let's start thinking about transition and whatnot. It was just like, oh, well, if this is not going to come online for another 15, 20 years, what do we care? Our money is silver halide, print film technology. And Steve's kind of like, wow, we own the patents on this technology. We developed it. We invented it here at Kodak, and we're not even going to nurture its adoption down the road because they did not see the forest from the tree leaves, right? They were so fixated in their own world. And so that comes back down to your question on small businesses and IT modernization. Well, small businesses are great at, you know, and Steve said to me, it's like small businesses are great at innovation. They're really good at innovating and inventing because that's all they do. That's the heart of what they do because they're trying to be relevant and they can't be relevant without coming up with that it product or that it thing that everyone wants to jump on. And I think what's interesting now, especially the way our infrastructure is set up, especially here in the U.S., 
small businesses can pop up a lot faster and be more nimble and agile and, and develop quicker than probably 20, 30 years ago in certain ways. And, and once again, this varies on from an industry to industry perspective. But I think from IT modernization perspective, they will play a huge role in helping come up with those innovative and inventive solutions and helping implement. Taking into account other government agencies, where do you see the relationship between small businesses and government? I think it's always going to be a symbiotic relationship of some sort. You know, the SBA has a mandate of trying to get ensure federal contracts and grants are awarded to 25% for small businesses. So there's always that goaling scorecard that we, the SBA, are trying to adhere to and encourage our federal peers to achieve. I also think for federal government to look at new solutions that could be implemented in a pilot perspective, small businesses are great at that. You know, the larger businesses are great for certain things too, but I think when you're trying to test something out, you create a win-win scenario when you work with the small business. I mean, if you look at the SBIR program, even though I don't work on that anymore, we took an awful lot of little bets, little risks on these different companies, and we got massive payouts from them with the companies that have emerged and the technologies that evolved. I mean, when you look at your mobile phone, I mean, a vast majority of the components that make your mobile phone were resulting from R&D done by small businesses. And you saw the patents for that too, right? <laughs> uh, I have looked at them, yeah, later on, but I, yes, but the microprocessors Qualcomm, and that was a SBIR funded company, the Biometric, that's Ultra Screen Corporation, that was also a small business. CMOS Pixel, or the digital camera, that was a Photobit Corporation, that was Eric Fossum. He got SBIR funding to refine and develop the Pixel. Wow. The camera phone. Do you have like a walking encyclopedia of technology knowledge where you see technology everywhere and you're like, that person did that and that company did that? <laughs> uh, I saw that patent. I saw that patent. <laughs> actually, uh, kind of. Not to lie. Uh, not to boast or anything. But yeah, I uh, because of the years I've been in the game and all the different patents and technologies I've seen over the years. Yeah. So Eric Fossum's a friend. One of the guys who invented 3D printing, Tim Anderson, I met him at a beach party years ago when I was in California. And, and we didn't even know. Like, I just, we were hanging out at a beach party with friends. They were out kite surfing, and I was just the geeky friend hanging out. And then we were just talking that night. And I said, Oh, yeah, in my prior life, I used to work on patents and stuff. And I used to look at these things. 3D printing, I guess, is what y'all call it now. Back then, we called it this. And and then he looked at me and he said, wait, you looked at solid freeform fabrication and blah, blah, blah. And I go, yeah, I used to look at all these patents. And I remember using the manual Saks patents. And then he goes, Manny's patents? And I go, how do you know? What, who are you? <laughs> who are and then you? he said, I'm Tim Anderson. I said, oh, you're that Tim Anderson? He's like, yeah. I go, oh, I know your stuff. I used your patents to reject everyone else's patents. I used <laughs> yours and Saks's patents. And then we just, it was just this like really giddy moment where I'm pulling up all the patents. I'm like, yep, I use that one. I use that one. I use that one. And so it was just that surreal moment. So, I bet yeah. there's a ton of stories there. Yeah. Tim's a really fascinating guy. Where do you see the future of government technology wise? It's going to be ever evolving and growing. And I think it's going to be coming at a much rapid pace than it has in the past. They talk about us being in the fourth industrial revolution right now, but I think with technology scaling up and developing and iterating a lot faster, it's going to require government to be more agile and innovative and inventive to keep up with the demands. And back to small businesses, the challenge for many of them is funding. Yep. 
How is SBA working with these companies to bring advanced technology to government? So I think in part advocating and cheerleading those paths forward, I think, for example, SBI is a great example of that, but also with our Office of Government Contracting and Business Development, locating opportunities for contract funding, whether it's applying for the funding itself or applying, you know, so our government contract and business development encourages a lot of prime subpriming mentor-protege programs and stuff of that nature, where a prime company like Orbital ATK and Northrop of Boeing might go for a bigger contract, but they have to subcontract a lot of work out. And those small businesses can you know, go and compete for those pieces of the pie from the subcontracting perspective. I think what's interesting about small businesses and government is, is that there are a couple of different avenues, a la carte approach to engaging with government procurement and government acquisition and, and contracting. I think there's the supply chain and then there's the go out and become big on your own one day. But the supply chain is huge. The largest manufacturing base that we have is here in America. It's in Los Angeles. And it's a ton of small businesses that do those little custom one-off widget manufacturing. And why would a small business or in what instance would a small business want to work with the government versus just staying in the private? Well, I mean, that's a nice thing. You can do both. It's not that you're precluded from doing one and not the other. I look at it as diversifying your basket, right? So diversifying with the different eggs. And so you go after funding opportunities with the government. It's more time consuming, but it's a guaranteed flow of income. And then working in the private sector is also a guaranteed flow of income. So it's you want to diversify yourself so that you're not fixated on one flow of funding only. Now, as far as the future of SBA, where do you see that going technology-wise? Or what are your maybe some projects you're working on currently or that you hope to tackle? Yeah. So Maria and Guy have a strategic plan to really modernize SBA's technology platforms, you know, bring it all to the 21st century, right? So we've made a huge dent on modernization efforts, especially by putting more and more of our technologies into the cloud, locating and using infrastructure or more so software as a service platforms. I think what we're seeing is a notion and adoption of Technology iteration, technology development, and knowing when to be in an O&M perspective and when to be in a constantly curating development perspective. It's not kind of like you just throw the technology at the problem and then solve it and bam, it's done. It's, yeah, constantly iterating, constantly refining and constantly improving. And I I think the agency is really starting to understand and gravitate towards that perspective more and more. So I I think some of the projects we we're working on. Like I said, it's a single sign-on identity. I think everyone's tired of having 10 different usernames and 10 different passwords, being able to use that one authenticator system and be done with it. You know, that's going to be a huge one for us. I think another one that will be critical is our, actually we're in the middle of helping work on the small business investment companies program and modernizing their platforms so that the different investment funds that use the SBAC program can funnel in through this one-stop shop solution. I think we're also looking to help modernize our Office of Disaster Assistance and our Office of Capital Access so that people can get access to the right tools and resources a lot faster and better. We've been looking at voice assistance and voice automation. So, you know, we did last year a hackathon around uh, SBA.gov for National Small Business Week, and we're doing it again this May. And one of the premises that we started to see pop up were voice automation systems. And then back in November of last year, AWS did a hackathon of their own using SBA data to see if they could further build out some prototypes of voice assistant. We were able to see a few renditions come out, really basic iterations, but 
am I a small business? What's my next code? Stuff like that. Answer top line questions. I think what we're trying to do is augment the customer journey a little bit better and customer experience where when the person finally talks to a human on the other end, the first three to five questions have been figured out already so that they're directed to the right person at for the right moment. So what's next for you? What's next for me? Uh, right now, ha, that's a good question. I don't know. I am working towards getting our deliverables done by September 30th. And we're on track for a lot of the projects that my team is on the hook for. After that, probably looking for my next adventure. I think it's been fun. I love SBA. I think it's been a great agency so far in the team. The leadership's been inspiring, but I've been there for almost six years. So I, I am on, on the lookout for what my next adventure could be. I'm always open to looking for the next problem to tackle. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This no. was a great perspective, a great conversation. You actually spoke with us last August. I did. In a video. So I did. I was interested in that as well. And I'm glad you were able to join us for a podcast to kind of go a little deeper. No, and I appreciate that. And thank you very much. I think your government CIA does a great job in helping tell the story and letting folks know about the importance of information management and information systems. So I, I do appreciate that. Okay. Great. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. GovCast is produced by Amy Kluber. It is edited by Resonate Recordings. Theme music provided by Big Hoax. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact Joe O'Neill at J-O-N-E-I-L-L -L at governmentcio.com.